Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. HIV Hope and Charity is a podcast series brought to you by TVPS, a Berkshire-based charity that's been supporting people affected by HIV since 1985. I'm Sarah... And I'm Jess and we work for TVPS. And our mission is to give people affected by HIV a voice. If you'd like to know more about the work we do, visit our website, tvps.org.uk. Welcome to HIV Hope and Charity. Hello, Jess. Hello, hello. Nice to right. see you. Yes, good, thank you. Excellent. Now, you mentioned um, a couple of weeks ago in Mark's episode, before Mark's episode, that everybody had been Googling um, for HIV Yes, yes, the it's a sin had really increased lots of different searches around HIV. Yes, that's very true. And and we had more contacts as well, didn't we, from people yeah. asking um questions. So I think what's come through for me is that people want to be educated mm. about HIV. Some of their knowledge is a bit patchy. So I put it to you, Jessica, where would you recommend people find reliable sources of information if they want to educate themselves? Well, go and have a look at our website, of course, www.tvps.org.uk. So we have lots of great information. There are obviously lots of other sites, THT, Avert, tons. And I'll put lots of links out so that people can easily access those to go and get some good education because it's really easy just to fall down a rabbit hole on the internet and then you're you know where are you um there's us there's also safe sex Berkshire it's a really fantastic site and you don't have to be living in Berkshire to go and have a look at that they've got some great information on there um so have a look at that and actually even social media we try to educate people through our social media as well so go and have a look at that and and give it a little share and a like and a comment please if you like it excellent may I say how beautifully you've just promoted tvps well done did you like that? It's almost like I, I like, like it, right? It's almost like it's my job. <laughs> yes. well, I'm so excited today because this is the last in the three series that we're doing around It's a Sin, isn't it? And I'm really excited for our guest today. Let's see what he has to say. Okay, so today we are very excited um, because making his second appearance on our podcast is someone who's been volunteering for TVPS for over two decades 
Um, Sean is the chair of our charity and previously he chatted with us about funding cuts in the charity sector but today we're following on from um, all of our It's a Sin theme and he's going to chat with us about his time volunteering with TVPS as a buddy. So welcome Sean. Sarah the clap. Sarah always forgets the clap Sean you see. I do. It's normally just me. Thank you. Um, Hi Sean are you okay? I'm good good morning how are you? We are, we're good. Yes, good. we're getting back into the swing of doing our podcasts, aren't we, Jess? Yes, yes. Brilliant, no, brilliant. So we've been um, talking, well, we've been talking about It's a Sin since it was aired, haven't we? Yeah. We stopped. And we um, have talked to lots of people that have, remember how London was at the time, kind of in the 80s, but we've not really talked to anybody who wasn't living in London to kind of share their experience of what it was like in other parts of the country. I know you were in Southampton, I'm, so tell us tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so I it sort of um, I was living in Southampton in sort of the early 80s and I moved to Berkshire, Maidenhead in the sort of early 90s. So I sort of lived in both counties during that time. Um, while there was a lot of press coverage and the you know the adverts of the tombstones and all that, it didn't hadn't really filtered down to the kind of provinces, I suppose. For, for, for a while, it took a while for it to kind of to, to hit home. And I mean, there was a lot of press, a lot of things about being, being a gay man. It, it sort of made you did, it made you think about being a gay and you actually became quite insular. The community became quite closed, if that made sense. You didn't certainly talk about your sexuality. You didn't really talk about if you were getting a mortgage and all sorts of things. Initially, it was very much keep it all quiet, don't say anything, because there was such a big stigma. And actually, everyone was tarred with the same brush, if that made sense, even if you were having uh, active sex or not having active sex, because you're a gay person, a gay man, it was automatically assumed you had HIV. So there was a huge amount of closing the community you know, the club nightclubs used to be knock on the door and, and just check that you were gay and all that kind of stuff. On a positive side, on the negative side, you certainly, you know, I did have a house, I did have life insurance and all that kind of stuff. And I had to do lots of tests and things like that in those days, which today you would think, God, total discrimination. Yeah. Mm. In those days, it was just, um, you just had to do it. Otherwise, you just didn't get anything. And certainly when you were diagnosed, if you were diagnosed with HIV, it actually made massive impact on your your way of living because you couldn't get insurance, you couldn't get a mortgage. You know, there were so many things in your life that stopped. If that makes, that actually not just the the sex life, but also the living part was very difficult. And on top of that, living with HIV, which in those days, as you know, was a very different time, and it was a very short term illness for many many people. As but there was also some people that thought it was a short term illness, but went on to live for a very long time and are still living today. No one knew, so it became a very much a a, a thing where we did take lots of precautions. I mean, it was quite common for everyone. It was encouraged everyone to go and have tests. I mean, and but of course, you'd always end up going to the sexual health clinic, giving a false name. Um, you'd never go to see your GP, you'd never have it made sure it was never put on your record, because you didn't want that stigma, because it had such a negative impact on, on every aspect of your life. So at the time, when all this was going on, I mean, what was, was there a point during that time when you suddenly realised actually you, you should be testing or you should be mindful that this was happening? Is there there's some kind of a moment you, either, you remember or was it 
slowly filtering through? No, I think it's when it started to, uh, when HIV started to impact some of my friends uh, and they, you know, they became diagnosed with HIV and, you know, a lot of them, I wouldn't say, you know, we were young, I was in my early 20s, so we were in our sort of peak, you know, on the gay scene and everything. It certainly made us reflect on that. And of course, because it took a bit of time to hit the provinces, people were still having unprotected sex. The use of condoms was discussed, but it wasn't made ready available. Some people still carried on as they were before. I was never that promiscuous. I was sort of came about, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to start taking precautions. And I, and I and actually changed my whole sexual activity, you know, in terms of what I did and what I didn't do. But there was a number of my friends that didn't because it was just their lifestyle. And then sadly, they did contract HIV and it did move into AIDS. And we lost, and I lost a few friends. And I think that's when it hit home that London seemed a long way away. I actually had never been, you know, I'd been to London for the day, but I'd never actually been out in London, if that makes sense. You know, being a provincial boy, I'd never, I'd never been to a gay bar or anything, a gay club in London. So I'd never experienced any of that. So it was very much when it when it started to impact some of my friends and and that was that was it really. Um, yeah, it became more real. More real and uh you know and we all and then when we started to sort of get a bit older we started to get mortgages we sort of let's get a more you know we thought let's settle you know and we got partners and that's when you started to settle down a little bit more um but it was still very much a a secret um, that you were gay and you never really declared it to anybody, to be honest, except oh. you're in a circle. If- kind of touch on that on the, in the programme. If I had to identify you with someone in It's a Sin, I, I, it would be Ash, intelligent, articulate, one of the first of that group to notice by seeing that article in the newspaper and going, oh, hold on, something, something's going on here that we need to take notice of. Uh, and to be honest, also in those days, I was a little bit mixed. I wasn't sure if I was gay or not gay, if that made sense for a period of time. So I kind of lived a, I lived a dual life for a while. That also made me think when, it, when HIV, I need to con- decide what I am because I don't want to impact on somebody else, if that makes sense. Particularly, uh, uh, you know, if I did decide to go and live with a lady, which I never did in the end. But, um, you know, that was a bit on umming and ahhing in those days, a bit unsure. I think it's my upbringing. I was, a bit, you know, had to sort of do what was right, what the family thought was right at the time. That's why I moved to Southampton, because it was a long way from my parents. <laughs> so, yeah. But you no, could was, find yourself. I did, actually. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I kind of knew I was, I kind of knew I was different when I was 17, but I didn't quite know what, why. And it kind of, it was when I moved away from home, I kind of, fell on to the found this gay scene and thought oh this I think this is me I feel like I found my place you know it was all very separate I had a family life friends a, a gay life and a work life and they were very separate and nobody I never really talked about and crossed any of them over for for at least maybe 15 years or so quite a long time never meant my parents never really asked what I was up to because I did bring the odd girl home and they thought mm-hmm. oh, okay maybe it's just a late you know late person that's uh, like what happened to Richie and Jill isn't it where the parents yeah. were just convinced that Jill was yeah. Richie's girlfriend yeah exactly that's exactly I used to bring you know girlfriends home and then mum and dad assumed automatically we were going out and I never said no we weren't or anything I just let them believe it for a while 
I mean, I never actually told my parents I was gay till I was 45, which is a little bit scary. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. that. That's a whole different story. My brothers and a sisters... Different podcast. <laughs> a whole different story. My brothers and sisters all knew, but I never, they were in there, you know, quite elderly. So, and that's a hell of a funny story. But anyway, so I tell you, when I did tell my dad, I'll tell you quickly, because my dad was in the war. When I did tell my dad, after lots of umming and marring, he said, oh, uh, oh. We used to put people like you in, we, during the war, we used to put people like you in jail. And that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> well, oh, that was good. Right, bye. Anyway, that's another story. Anyway. But, oh, right, my goodness. It was, it was a very quiet, it was a very, um, it was a great life, to be honest, but it was a very inclusive life. You kept your friends, your friends very separate. We all supported each other. We supported each other if some of us had HIV. You know, so many myths and horrible things going on about having to use separate spoons and forks and, you know, not using the same toilet and all that kind of stuff. It was really ridiculous. It was quite scary, to be honest. But we didn't know. So that's why we all just kept together, if that made sense, stuck together. And I'm still friends with a number of people I, you know, in that time. I, you know, I've, lived, I've been living up here now nearly 30 years, a long time. But I still keep in touch with the, the friends that live in that area. And we've, you know, we were in our early 20s. And mm. um, so we kind of went through a lot together, if that makes sense. Yeah, Definitely. Loads together. Yeah. I know. <laughs> there was a lot going on in the 80s. Was yeah. it to get information? Everyone talks about the tombstone adverts or the iceberg advert. Was, was there any local information? No, not really. There was a little, I mean, we had a gay bar and a gay club and there was a few little bits like they had the big posters up as well in, in the air, public areas and stuff. But you didn't really get, you know, when you went to the sexual health clinic, it was very uh, clinical, clinical, if that makes yes. sense. It is. But literally, you you know, you used a false name. You were called. You had to remember what your name you. They'd be Did you have that. one that you used all the time? Oh, you share I'd, it with us? I'd use different names, yeah. So I can't remember them. Yeah, now. that would be confusing. <laughs> You're looking all. around. Oh, no, they're not here. <laughs> oh, wait, no, no, it's me. It's me. It must be me. And it took ages. I remember, uh, I think, uh, one of the, one of the Mark, I think, it's a few week, months ago, said it took weeks. And it actually did take weeks to get your results back. You know, it was very, very slow. And I actually had, when I was claiming for a mortgage, and that's even when I moved here, they actually came to the house. Somebody came to the house to take a blood test as part yeah. of from the, from the life insurance company. Yeah, before you could get your mortgage. Absolutely. Such an invasion of privacy, isn't it? That? It's looking back, you think, how did they get away with all of that? You know, but how did no, they? There was no protection or no law in those days. It was pretty bad, to be honest. Um, That's outrageous, isn't it? Yeah. I'm quite, I'm really shocked by that. I didn't realise that could even do that. Yes, yeah. You came around your house because uh, a lot of mortgages in those days were um, like what I call it now, where you get a life assurance. It's basically you're building a pot of money up. Oh, an endowment endowment mortgage, mortgage, yeah. yeah. That's pretty much it, you know. So the insurance and the life insurance paid off the mortgage, if that made sense. So the endowment paid off the mortgage. So they wanted to make sure that you uh, be around to pay it off, I suppose. Um, And when you applied for the mortgage, they asked your sexuality. Yes, you had to do, yes, yeah. And actually, initially we did, we, we lied, but then it all became, particularly when you've got a partner and you mm-hmm. want a joint mortgage, it became obvious you had to, you know, both go and have the test, if that made sense. So they both came to the house. That was in the early 90s in, in Berkshire. Isn't that um, awful? I got my first mortgage in in the early 90s. I mean, they must have asked asexuality, or maybe they didn't. I don't know. I don't remember any invasive questions at all. 
They did ask. They were there was always a question: Are you homosexual? There was always a question: uh, uh, Have you had a HIV test lately? Have you tested positive? Or even, no, have you just had a test? Not even if mm. you're negative. Have you had a test? As I said, I think I said that they assumed that because you were gay, you would automatically have HIV. There was an assumption, I think, which was quite bad. That was that was how we took it. I think, well, the fact that you can remember this moment and I can't probably suggests that because I don't even remember being asked about my sexuality. I don't know. Discrimination between men and women back then. Yeah. So, yeah, it was it was it was difficult time. I mean, we still had fun and we went, you know, we had good times and we looked after each other. But I think when I moved to I moved to with a job, I moved to the Berkshire um, and my hours, I changed my job slightly. I was doing more Monday to Friday, daytimes. I wasn't doing shifts. Before I was in hospitality doing shifts and weekends and evenings. And so it was difficult to um, to do anything. But to, I was keen to give back. I've, I've always been quite involved in, you know, giving back. And as soon as I could, I I'd signed, I sort of, because I'd lost so many friends in Southampton and in, and in, the, in that area where I lived, the South Coast, when I moved up to here, uh, into Berkshire I did find try and find a local charity where I could get involved and that's where I found TVPS and I did go on a kind of a, a few weekends training course it was quite intense and uh, it was very much all about short-term care uh, because that's what people needed in those days it was very much and it was very much listen, looking at it's a sin it was very much what Jill did towards at the end the last program where she just went to see that guy who was in hospital all on his own and she just went to hold his hand. And that's exactly what I ended up doing, you know, uh, with TBPS. They had a, a really robust buddy scheme. And it was very much uh, go in and, and be there for that person. Often they were on their own, often living on their own or in, a, in hospital on their own. And you were just asked to go and visit and just be there as a listener or and to go and maybe help them with some, if they were at home, go and do some shopping for them. Don't remember them getting much social care. Uh, so that we would do I would do shopping um, that I would you know just take them out you know walk them out um, in their wheelchair or whatever I mean they were all at different stages I mean I sort of looked after about two or three for a very short period of time uh, one was a real character a local character he, he was disabled as well but you would never realize it he managed to get around from in his wheelchair you'd have to sort of um, you know go and see him and he'd be and I'd sort of, because um, there was no mobiles in those days, you know, where is he? And you'd, you'd, you'd know he'd be sort of walking around, going around in the wheelchair and, in, and you'd have to go and find him in Slough High Street. Um, <laughs> he was quite a character. You know, it was very short-term support for him because he was quite poorly and used to go and see him and then go and see him in hospital. I don't think, I think I might be one of the few people that went and actually visited him in hospital. And I think he didn't get any visitors. He didn't really have any family such. So that was very much... The early days, on, and that sort of, there was a buddy self-help group, which was great, because it was quite hard work to take mm-hmm. all that on. There were boundaries as well, because some some buddies did get too close to some of the clients, because they ended up being, not 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 in a sexual way, but very, you know, friendly. And it, it, there was a line, you know, it was difficult sometimes to know where's the line, uh, because they could call you any time of the day, and it was, you know, it could be quite challenging sometimes for some of the, the buddies to have that distance from the from the client as well because you do most of the people wanted to help and be there for them but it was it could take over they could take over particularly if they were really vulnerable and on their own you know and so be so a lot of it was all about supporting the buddy group was about supporting each other and helping people and sometimes we maybe had to change a buddy if um 
a body had to change if they were getting a little bit too close and it was getting a little bit difficult. But no, it was, and some of them I actually budded for one of the, I ended up with one particular guy, I ended up looking after his partner as well, and they were in High Wycombe and actually um, support, looked, looked up, went to visit them for over 10 years. Right. And we would speak on the phone and then I'd go and visit because I traveled quite a bit with my job then. So I'd drive in on my way home and we'd have a cup of tea and, and just, just to be a listening ear and another face because they just didn't go out. Everyone was slightly different, everyone had slightly yeah. different needs. Some were very short term and some were very much, well, one was, and I only stopped seeing them because they moved away. I hope they're still okay, but I did see them for a long, long time. Oh, it's a lot of responsibility, isn't it? Yeah. That sort of voluntary role. Yeah, it is. Making the last few weeks of someone's life a little bit better. Yes, it was. And, and, um, Again, I kept that very quiet. That's, it sounds really, you know, sad now, reflecting on it, but I didn't really tell many people I was doing it, if that makes sense. I just kept it to myself um, with my close friends and, uh, and, uh, found, and my uh, partner at the time, now my husband. kept it very quiet. Um, it was just something I wanted to do because, one, I, you know, I didn't want to disclose anything about the client because obviously I wanted to keep that confidential. And two... Uh, you know, this, there was still that huge stigma around. And, and um, so I just made, I just did it myself, really, just kept it all quiet and worked within the buddy group. Uh, yes, yeah, and supported each other, which is so important. Yeah, it was great, actually, I have to say, very good. Yeah. There were great buddies there. It sort of, and as HIV evolved, the buddy, need for buddies changed as well as the, as the drug regimes became a lot better um, and, you know, the different things happened with, with the sort of, looking after themselves and things there's a lot more knowledge the need for that immediate care did dwindle to be honest um and so the buddy system sort of it dissolved in the late 90s to be honest it sort of disappeared in the late 90s when when things started to change with with the the medication and things like that yes and they could all start supporting each other i guess and building their own yeah, yeah. And, and that was where things like dropping started to happen. And uh, things like uh, the set, you know, the centre was there when I arrived, just just in Slough. Um, and uh, so that was quite active with drop ins and things like that. And sadly, there was also quite a lot of memorial services and church, like quite, quite regularly, there was a, you know, a service that because a lot of the clients had passed away. So that was quite sad um and there was an, an annual memorial day uh, which i don't think we do anymore do we uh, because we, there were so many deaths uh in that sort of period of time so there would be an annual rem- remembrance day for all the clients that had gone in that 12 month period so yeah it was di- very very different times very very different times i always felt tbps w- was brilliant in terms of what they did because and that's why i've stayed around so long because it kind of it's evolved you know as the needs of the clients have evolved i've I, you know the, the 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 charity has evolved and the support has, has evolved as well which is which is brilliant and i think that's why it's managed to stand the test of time because it's it has evolved as as you know the different the types of um uh gender you know with hiv because it was all very much just focused on gay men in those days and obviously that's definitely not the case now it's much wider so it was a very yeah it's at the time it was very much a short-term support very much kept yourself to yourself looked supported each other within the group um did what you could even just go and hold someone's hand in hospital and have a chat with them and just listening that's that was what it was needed and it and you always felt you were doing something good giving back you know that's that's uh 
it was sad, very sad when they passed away, but you always felt where you did the best you could for them in that short time you were with them. Such an important kind of role at the time. And I think, yes, things have changed now. We've definitely progressed and medication has advanced. It's so important not to forget what happened back then, what people went through, the the amount of volunteer hours that were kind of dedicated to, to helping those people. And I think it's quite easy sometimes, isn't it, Jess, for us to kind of look forward and, and forget to kind of look yes. where we come from. Yeah, it was really lovely hearing about the Remembrance Day that TVPS used to hold, actually. Mm. I, didn't, I had no idea that we used to Yes, it was a lovely, it was a lovely day. They had... Um, it wasn't. It wasn't. A, it, it sounds terrible. It wasn't. A, um, it wasn't. A, uh, it was spiritual rather than yeah. uh, religious. It wasn't religious because we didn't know people's religions and stuff. But it would be a day where we would maybe just um, go to the centre. Probably often it was in the garden because it was outside. It was in the summer, and we would, you know, candles and it was. It was a nice. It was nice, and we'd have uh, like names up on the. You know, we'd actually read names out. So it was quite nice. It was nice. To remember people that we that had lost in the 12 months which was yeah kind of... oh that does sound lovely doesn't it yeah it was it was it was it was good and, and um you know as I say as the face of HIV changed it's, it became and we had more long-term survivors I think they're still called that today aren't they yes um, yeah you know, then um people became uh, the need became very different and so the buddy group as it was, disp- kind of disbanded, to be honest, and then we, we sort of ended up being more peer support and more it, the needs for the clients changed from more medical and sort of well-being to more um, uh, living, if that makes sense, and sort of the well the welfare side rather than the well-being side, if that makes sense. So the well-being side was still as important. Um, they could get that in in other ways, if that makes sense. So yeah, definitely. And I think those that did survive but had thought they were going to die, and we know this because we hear it from kind of some of our longest-term service users, have really struggled to kind of get their head around mm. scenario ever since. Yeah. And for the future, and a lot of their peers and their friends had been lost. So I think there's, you know, firstly, why did they survive and their friends, partners? Secondly, having been told you're going to die, no one ever formally said to them, oh, actually, you're not now. Yes, there was one incident actually. It's what I mean. One person who was diagnosed went off on a cruise and did everything they could and spent all their money. And actually, they're still around now. So they kind of because they they thought my life's I'm going to do everything I can in the next twelve months. And actually, they're still alive today. Well, that was yes. the advice, wasn't it, at the time? It was spend everything, live your life, sell your house, yes. go and have an amazing time, and actually. There are huge problems with that because of the fact so many people are survivors and yeah. spent all their money and sold their houses. Yes, exactly. That's it. And they're struggling now because they, you know, because in and also in those days it was a disability, class as a disability. Yeah. You know, you did get a disability allowance, you did get a car, disability car. So there was a lot more available to you in terms of funding and stuff like that, which is I think gone now completely um so it's a very different uh, way of so because you you were diagnosed with HIV automatically you were classed as disabled um and that opened and so they did they were living on that rather than they'd gone and spent everything yeah 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 Yeah. they have and I think there's a lot of resentment now with some of them would have been very different they probably could have gone back to work and or 
develop new career skills. They're a very talented bunch of people anyway. So I think some of them feel, you know, their life was wasted or they're very dependent on the welfare system and they didn't need to be. Well, also because, you know, they, as they were diagnosed, they couldn't get life assurance. They couldn't get their mortgage. They had to sort of end sentence. You couldn't get another mortgage. So it became, their whole life changed. It was, it was quite, that's why most people kept it quiet, if that makes sense, and didn't say anything. To this day, I mean, we don't really publicise where our centre is. We're a bit more open than we used to be. When I first started, I was told, never tell anyone our address, ever. No, that was always um, the case. It was always very top secret. Don't tell anyone yeah. where the centre is because of the, you know, victimisation and, and people not feeling safe. It's a safe space for people to come to. Absolutely. Um, and I think there is still that kind of cloak of secrecy a little bit. I think we're becoming more open, but, you know, the stigma's still there. So it's it's a path we have to kind of tread carefully, isn't it, in terms of how open we are about kind of where we're based, whether our neighbours know... One of the things that we did do, and you've got your red ribbon on, um, is the World AIDS, World AIDS Day did become a big event day. And there was a lot of um, activity at that time, more fundraising. But to be honest, that was tough. You know, I remember fundraising in Windsor High Street um, on Red On. And actually, I know that's why we probably not, because actually people would come up and say negative things like, oh, they deserve it. Or, um, oh, you've got HIV, what are you doing? You know, should I be, can I get, can I get near you? It was actually quite a challenge yeah. to do that sort of fundraising, um, even though it was an important part and the awareness was great. And it was all, you know, the celebrities and all wore the red ribbon and, you know, supported it on TV, actually on the ground in the high street in, in Windsor or wherever you did it, it was tough. It was. It wasn't, and a lot of the people that ended up doing it got a lot of abuse. So we ended up stop do, stop doing that because it wasn't fair on them. It became a really difficult. Uh, while it was an important day to keep awareness, it became a very difficult day for people to go out and 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 to raise, you know, to do to get raise money and stuff and get, shake a tin. So I know in our time, you've done lots of different things like walks and things like that, um, just to keep the awareness there. Uh, and sort of drop-ins at the at the local uh, Windsor Sports Centre and stuff like that. And I think that's great. It was really tough. I remember outside the post office in Windsor being abused by some old man who said, oh, um, you know, I'm not coming near you because you've got HIV. And I thought, oh, okay. It was, you know, you would look at it now and think you'd laugh, but actually at the time it was pretty, you know, it was... People- oh, I can believe it. I can believe it. We, I mean, it's there's still definitely, I would say, we hear we all we feel ourselves as and then we hear from our clients certain bits of stigma that are still very much like that when you say Sarah oh definitely I've had people ask yeah yeah no I've had people ask me if I'm positive which always I find weird if I worked for a homeless charity they wouldn't assume I was homeless that's true I often think I'm positive I get asked that all the time do you um, and do you know what was interesting and this is probably sounds bad actually but uh, of course, working in this closed community with TV, you see a lot of clients. Actually, mm. you'd never you would never approach them if you saw them in the in the high street unless they approached you and said hello. Um, you kept it. You kept the anonymity very much the case. And sometimes, sadly, they would mass. You could see them coming down the high street. They'd massively take a wide berth because they didn't. Oh. They didn't want to have that conversation yeah. because they wanted to keep their anonymity. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, which I which I totally respected. But yeah. some people found that quite hard. But you've got to respect that they don't want to be. They're not. You know, they haven't declared their their status. So you have to be um, upfront. And they're all scared that someone's going, "Oh, hi!" And they say, well, "How do you know? How do you know them?" And you don't want to say, "Well, I, they go to the HIV, you know, drop-in center." Um, TV, you know. So it was very much, you know, very. It was that was also. Uh, you know, that's still something we do now, isn't it? If we we let our service users know that if we are out and about or we see them, um, then yes, like you said, it's as if nothing's happened. If they want to come and say hi, that's fine. Um, we always let them know that if someone that we're with asks who they are, we'll say a volunteer, you know, it, it, or someone else we work with, yes, exactly. someone you know from a meeting, something like that. But yes, apart from that, yeah, we never want someone to be worried if they might see us out. So yes, we very much still live by that kind of yeah. rule. Yeah. Definitely. I use that rule for everybody, even staff, Sean. If I see Jess outside of work. Oh, I <laughs> she's awful. I have to run around and chase her. <laughs> up and down the aisles of the supermarket <laughs> work now, Sarah's like, I, I don't know who it is I've never met them before <laughs> yes. my job in job many years in HR I'm used to kind of keeping secrets and keeping things to myself and not sharing things you know so I'm used to it so it was quite easy for me but some people really took offense when people totally ignored them um, and I said well they're not actually doing you know they're actually you've got to remember you know they are living a separate life probably they haven't they haven't even declared it sometimes declared it to their own families sometimes you know so you have to be you have to honor that and respect that yeah definitely yeah we still have to do that now it was very it was just very different times and um of course there was also a huge amount of children born with hiv mm-hmm. uh, a lot of support for you know young mums and uh with babies at the time and that that's changed now hasn't it as well um and also you know the youth group i remember we had our youth group as well so we it's been great i mean you guys have done a fabulous job evolving the needs of the client as the client and you keep very close to the client needs and 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 that's changed and now we're in a position where quite a few are working so we have to look at how we can support them and but going back to the going back to the 80s very much a I mean, it was looking back on it, you know, you sort of always look at things with rose tinted glasses a bit, but, but it was tough, but you kind of knuckled down and you live and that was it. You're in it. So you just cracked on, if that made sense. And you just made the most best of what you could. Um, but it was very much a closed community. You supported mm. uh, my lives were very separate uh, um, and, you know, didn't really cross over. Uh, and that that was how a lot of people lived in those days you know and as you say there's characters in it's a sin that actually exactly portray that you know separate family life separate work life separate home life um friends life and actually you just live very different lives and you that was the way you did it in those days so certainly that's how i did it anyway always stuck with me that time and that's why i've always wanted you know still feel quite passionate about supporting tbps and and uh, while we've made massive inroads with uh stigma and medication people still need there's still a huge stigma out there we still need to help people and when they're going to get diagnosed and um you know we need to we still need we're still needed you know yes. there's still a huge need for us it's not it's not gone away and i know there's a wish by tht to to not to have it new, new diagnosis gone by 2030 but there's a huge amount of work still to be done till we get there Oh, absolutely. Most definitely. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Sean. Thank you for your time today and for sharing with us.
Thank you for listening to HIV Hope and Charity. If you'd like to know more about our work, visit our website, tvps.org.uk. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.